Hello, hello, and welcome back to All Plotted Out, a My Little Pony Friendship is Magic podcast, where we've been trawling episode by episode through the later seasons of the show, because I think they deserve it. Now, last time, yes, I'm aware we met the new year with a couple of less than stellar episodes, though for very different reasons. I hope my analysis was somewhat entertaining, at least. But this time, while these episodes aren't going to set the world ablaze, I think we have a stronger crop. No pun intended. Today we'll be covering episodes 7 and 8 of season 7. Parental guidance and hard to say anything. So, we got Scootaloo and Rainbow Dash. What can go wrong? Let's find out with parental guidance. First aired May 20th, 2017, and was written by Josh Hamilton. It's his first contribution to the show, and it will not be his last. He has two more episodes this season, in fact, one of which I'm rather looking forward to talking about. I'll say this out the gate. I just looked up Josh Hamilton because I was sure he'd written for the show before, uh, not just because his name is Josh and I might have been getting him mixed up with Josh Haber. I am alarmed that this is his first episode because he comes in swinging like somebody who has written for the show multiple times. This is a really good introductory episode uh, and it would have been in quite high standing on that best first time script chart that I did a few episodes back. But anyway, we'll get into the details very shortly. It gets a 7.8 from IMDb, which is really solid. And the synopsis reads, When Rainbow Dash's parents discover she's a Wonderbolt, they show up at every event to cheer her on. However, their unabashed enthusiasm proves to be rather embarrassing and pushes Rainbow Dash to the brink. Interesting that that synopsis doesn't actually mention Scootaloo, who really is the element in this who gives it a degree of emotional depth that I think it would otherwise lack. I don't think this episode is really going for the more vulnerable, heart-tuggy elements of previous Rainbow and Scootaloo episodes like Sleepless in Ponyville or Flight to the Finish. But Scootaloo and Rainbow Dash's element is an important part of it. Not least because, while a very entertaining and frankly beautiful episode, I'm not sure there would be a tremendous amount of depth were it not for Scootaloo's commentary in a lot of ways. While the previous episode leaned in to the Cutie Mark Crusaders' responsibilities, it did have enough indication that uh, that these were still kids, they still had fun, they were still somewhat reckless and unself-aware. For example, them riding the block of granite down the road and nearly killing a pony. I mean, Scootaloo apologises, but still. The cold open has some classic, ill-informed over-enthusiastic CMC's irresponsibility to kick things off. What's nice about the CMC's at this point, I think, is that you can play into both their childishness and their growing experience, and it does not contradict. I mean, their, their specific age is not really set anyway, but it's nice that you can have characters with this degree of, of flexibility, that having started with something so comically misguided as their attempt, their successful attempt, as it happened to slingshot Scootaloo to Cloudsdale. 
without contradiction, it is actually Scootaloo that brings Rainbow Dash down to Earth later in the episode, because Scootaloo is right on the money with her assessment. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. First appearance by Rainbow Dash's parents. Fundamentally likeable, very well performed, particularly taken with Sarah Edmondson as uh, Windy Whistles, Rainbow Dash's mother. One thing I will say, and it's fine in the context of this episode, is that compared to other episodes, such as, for example, Flutterbrutter, aka Flutterbrutter, which have dealt with hitherto unseen family members, they're not really developed characters, either of these. They're there to provide a function. But nonetheless, the only thing you can actually take away about their personalities from this is that they're very enthusiastic about Rainbow Dash. They love their daughter. They want to support their daughter. Outside that, there's not really too much. I mean, that's I guess, I guess that's partly the point. It's interesting that in Top Bolt... One of the central issues of the episode was a character giving too much of themselves, their time, and their support to another character at the cost of their own self-interest. And where in this case, you know, it's parents, it's a little different. You can expect a, a further degree of egolessness, perhaps, when it comes to the care of a child. But still, it is indicated here that that Rainbow Dash left home quite a long time ago, uh, to such an extent that having basically been in the Wonder Bolts, either as a reserve or a a full bolt, since season three, uh, although we don't know the exact passage of time, they don't know this at all. So their communication must have been limited. It's implied that she's not really spoken to them in ages. So the fact that they really have nothing else in their lives apart from Rainbow Dash at this stage could be viewed as a bit problematic. It doesn't really come off that way in this episode because, as I say, the performances are really charming. It doesn't really have time to dig into that. That's not really the point of the episode either. But this is a far lighter, more comedic episode. And it... It goes full bore on that, so there's no tonal incongruity, and you're not really too fussed that it's not going into the weeds with these things. Well, at least I wasn't while I was watching it. Going in, I was prepared for ups and downs with this series, but it's not simply episode to episode, as was illustrated with the radically differing quality of the two plots in Forever Philly but also just in the sort of production style and approach of each episode. This really feels like a different show. And again, it's, it's, it's credit to Josh Hamilton that this really feels like the MLP that we, we know and love by this point. Even if it is leaning a little more than the show has in somewhat into the, the season two screwball pacing, which I think works well here. But uh, uh, as long-time listeners might have registered, I do have uh, subjective issues with the extent to which season two went down the kind of farce route. Rather like season two, some of the expressions here border on the the bug-eyed and crazy. But unlike something like Lesson Zero, it does enhance the performance. I mean, a lot of the time, this is just Scootaloo's caught these kind of mad, over-the-top, rubber expressions 
And she's just so enthusiastic. She's so excited about having met Rainbow Dash's parents by accident and learned all this stuff about Rainbow Dash. It's understandable. That said, though, while I'm entirely happy with this episode taking a more comedic tack while dealing with some some subtly dramatic elements that are woven in quite well, I could do without the sort of drinchy expressions in the the scene in the locker room with Rainbow Dash's parents, because I think it treads on the drama a bit. Not everything needs to be so flippant. So to have Rainbow Dash ending the scene looking like she's learnt the true meaning of Christmas does feel a little bit cheap. But this is a really well-paced episode. It's consistently funny. I particularly love the scenes exploring Rainbow Dash's home and past at the beginning. The backgrounds in this episode... The detail in her parents' cloud home, even the detail of the of the podium environment in the flashbacks, it's beautiful. I don't think I've ever seen Cloudsdale so well realised, and I'm not sure if I remember backgrounds quite this lush before. I'm not always the biggest fan of meta gags. I feel sometimes they can draw you out of the story, or, or, or they feel like a deliberate distraction, and an element of of cleverness to avoid earnestness, as if that's somehow embarrassing. But in this case, things like the the sound effect door joke really land. It's also the running gag with the half sandwich that Scootaloo slams into her scrapbook and can be seen every time she gets it out for the rest of the episode and is notable as being in the bin when she's presenting at school later in the episode. All of this stuff adds up to a nice comic beat at the end. All of these photos of literally every tiny detail from Rainbow Dash's house and all of the stuff, including the nappy she shoves in there, just being fan overkill, is drawn into focus by, while she gets a really admirable B, cheerily saying at the end, it was a little heavy on the pictures and there was a mouldy sandwich in your report, but... Interestingly, that sandwich has a more coherent role and amusing presence than any of the additional characters in Fluttershy leans in. But anyway, that's all in the past now. This is also reflected in the uh, general symmetry of the script and the way that there's a nice turnaround at the end where it is revealed to be effectively Scootaloo's episode. They give her some support at the end. And the final closing spotlight dissolve is on Scootaloo, looking slightly moved and proud as she's held aloft. Yeah, I'm, st- I'm still somewhat bristling at the fact that that comparatively lengthy synopsis didn't even mention Scootaloo. This is a Scootaloo episode, actually. Madeline Peters' performance is right on the money here. Yeah, I think it's testament to the performance of all three Cutie Mark Crusaders that you can hear how they would each react to these scenarios in your head, how they would deliver these lines. When Rainbow Dash first complains about her parents being a bit of a nuisance to Scootaloo, she says, what's wrong with a little support? It's a knowing reaction. And the animation very well articulates the fact that she's slightly hurt by this, that Rainbow Dash can take for granted what she's been given here. And it's really quite sad, actually, the way she delivers the line, why? When Rainbow Dash has unloaded both figurative barrels on her parents in the locker room. 
there's a sense of disillusionment, of disappointment, as well as just the upset of, of having seen Rainbow Dash be so mean to her folks. If it were Sweetie Belle doing it, you can imagine it being read with less sort of worldliness and hurt. I think you know what I mean. It would be more, it would be more like Commander Data reacting to new input. It's like, what's wrong with a little support? That was an unintentional hark back to the Sweetie Bot meme. And it was in no way at all intended as a uh, slight on Sweetie Belle's performance. Quite the contrary, Sweetie Belle is fantastically played throughout. I was mainly just referring to her comparative innocence, as we've broached before. Scootaloo has evidently experienced enough hurt, has experienced enough of being an outsider, that she can put Rainbow Dash in her place. There doesn't need to be a flashback scene or anything to give credence to Scootaloo saying, it's like, I, nev- I never got that. No one ever told me I was good at stuff, so I never believed it. Can you at least appreciate what your parents have tried to do? I almost wish it had leaned into the drama of this slightly more, but I do love these scenes. It's, it's a subtle little deepening of the Rainbow Dash Scootaloo relationship and a subtle shift. Gradually, I think Scootaloo is losing some of her illusions about Rainbow Dash because Rainbow Dash is still unduly arrogant. Even the way she's sort of depicted as like slouching against the log while Scootaloo is raising this stuff with her. It seems to articulate visually how much she takes things for granted. You know, you know, she just takes it, takes it as it comes. It should also be noted that, uh, as I implied, I think, earlier, the extent to which Rainbow Dash's parents express their pride and adulation is problematic. The extent to which it consumes them is kind of a problem, although fundamentally from a very good and admirable place. But this is thrown away as a sort of gag at the end. It's a nice, symmetrical gag. I know I use that term a lot, but... I think it's a a nice compliment to pay to a script that when Rainbow Dash does the big turnaround show at the end to show how much she actually values them, they say, wow, it was a bit much, a bit embarrassing, to be honest. And it's a bit sort of like... And they don't actually have any realisation that maybe they could dial it back. But it's not a big problem. Again, this isn't the central core of the episode. Stray observations... There's just lovely little details in this episode. Rainbow Dash has a main six photo in her locker, which you kind of just see under her hoof while she's putting something away. It's a nice bit of rounding of the world and the character dynamics. Another term I use a lot, I realise, but hey, it's important to me. Also, the flashback scene. I don't know whether it was the animator's idea or it was intended from the off, but uh, it's interesting that in the second and third place positions to Rainbow Dash... There is a young Spitfire and what appears to be a young Lightning Dust. I think it was probably put in after the writing process because there's no actual reference to them being there. But it is interesting, A, that it appears Rainbow Dash already met Lightning Dust and B, that she beats Spitfire. And uh, I honestly always assumed that Spitfire was a bit older, but this really is just random and quite trivial conjecture. Lovely bit for Cheerily as well at the end with her trying to calm down the cheering for Scootaloo in the classroom. 
This isn't a rock and roll concert. Please. It's it's really like cheerily to try and ride that balance between support and just not taking any nonsense. She evidently loves her job, even though she does get exacerbated by it. She's a great character. In some ways, I, I'm sorry that she doesn't get used more. Just be honest with them. I'm sure they'll understand where you're coming from. So, yeah. Really impressive debut from Josh Hamilton here. Feels very much part of the show. I don't necessarily think this is going to be held up as one of the great Scootaloo and Rainbow Dash episodes because it just doesn't lean quite as much into the drama. But as I say, while you're watching it, that really isn't a problem. This is really entertaining. Uh, So dynamically realised too. But yeah, really good stuff. Eight. It's not over yet. Hard to say anything. Uh, Sadly, that's an apt title in more ways than one. This is a fine episode. But I really haven't got a huge amount to say about it. It first aired May the 27th, 2017, and was uh, written by Becky Wangberg. It is her sole contribution to the show, um, and given that, I mean, again, rather like parental guidance, I think it fits into the fabric of the show uh, pretty well. One thing I will say out the gate, Becky evidently gets the CMCs and uh, really organically plays into their kind of childlike nature and their interaction. It gets a kind of fine 7.2 on IMDb. And the synopsis reads, The cutie mark crusaders figured out that Big Mac has his first crush and vow to help him win Sugar Bell's heart against the competition of feather bangs. Not actually a pegasus, as his name might imply, but anyway. This, in some ways, clearly parallels the season two episode Hearts and Hooves Day, where the cutie mark crusaders tried to play matchmaker with Big Mac and cheerily. But it does openly acknowledge this. It it refers back frequently. I don't know if that was Becky Wangberg's intention or whether those references were added in the script editing process. Either way, I I think they're welcome and apt references. I mean, the main difference here is that they're not trying to force two ponies together unwillingly. They're just trying to get one of them to actually muster the courage to say something. Hence the title. Big Mac being a logical choice for this. Nonetheless, it does play into a lot of the same sort of naivety beats as the season two episode. With all three of them expecting tropes from fairy tales to work. Now I'm going to do this a little bit differently. Because there are such obvious parallels here with that earlier episode. And I... (laughs) from a strictly practical sense, have so little to say about this episode on its own, that I'm going to draw in a second review. So, fighting it out for the crown of best episode showing the Cutie Mark Crusaders inexperience in matters of the heart, We Have Hard to Say Anything by Becky Wangberg versus (gasps) Hearts and Hooves Day, which was the 17th broadcast episode of season two, aired February the 11th, 2012, and was written by the one, the only, Megan McCarthy. 
The synopsis for Hearts and Hooves Day reads, The cutie mark crusaders try to get cheerily and Big Macintosh to fall in love with a strong potion, but they quickly regret their actions when some serious side effects arise. And it has a, yeah, decent IMDb rating of 7.6. Aside from the basic narrative and character parallels, there are other similarities here. They both include a song, or songs, perhaps you could say, in the later episode's case, that are more interested in reinforcing themes than they are creating a standalone hooky song. And that's entirely fine in both cases. I think it is better that they focus on the staging. I had forgotten the song from Hearts and Hooves Day, but actually remembered every single mimetic beat of the accompanying visuals. It's the girls trying to find prospective partners for Big Mac and rejecting a load of them on often quite superficial grounds. Again, we're in the the meme heartland of the show, season two. So we not only have the introduction of Button Mash, as he would be labelled by the fans here, the arcade game playing pony who would actually be spun off into a fan series. But we have a bunch of exploitable expressions, not least... The pony that is strangely obsessed with tubs of jelly. It's a lot of fun, and the lack of a chorus really isn't important. The same can be said of the song in Hard to Say Anything, which in some ways is actually a little more clever in its aesthetic approach, because not only does it play off the profound difference in style, and it is style, between Big Mac and Feather Bangs, you've got the slickness and tried and true charms of feather bangs on the one side with his sort of modern pop music video vibe and on the other you have the sort of clumsy fumbling old school country romance of big mac and what's more you have the two increasingly colliding with each other in a grotesque manner it is one of the standout bits of the later episode this Unfortunately, that does actually, to a degree, reflect that the rest of the episode is not exactly attention-grabbing. I think the real thing that keeps uh, hard to say anything going is the charm of the CMCs, because the the other characterizations are, are quite slight, even for Big Mac. He's a kind of cipher that they manipulate for a lot of the rest of the episodes, and they basically tell him what to do. I would like it if it was a little more balanced, Hearts and Who's Day works quite well in tone because the adults are always played as adults uh, having more measured, world-weary and knowing responses to the madness that the CMCs bring into their world until they are undone by the love potion slash poison. Cheerily and Big Mac are literally humouring the girls. They find it cute that they think they're suitable as a couple, and although there's no chemistry there, they just sort of laugh it off and, and treat each other with, with respect and, and laugh at the situation, really. And I think one of the emblematic scenes of this different approach is in Sugar Cube Corner, where Mrs Cake is being confused and exasperated by these twee nothings that Cheerily and Big Mac are spouting to each other. And she says to the cutie mock crusaders, I'm all for romance, but this has been going on for hours. And like a lot of the best episodes, especially in the more farcical style, I don't mean that as a criticism. Farce is just a genre. 
it really builds up uh, momentum to a, a comedic payoff where the characters sort of dryly realise how far things have got out of hoof. And in the case of Hearts and Hooves Day, it's Cheerilee's brilliant line. Girls, can you explain why I look like I'm getting married at the bottom of a pit? You have to be there. I do not do it justice. Now, cards on the table. Uh, yeah, I, I think that Hearts and Hooves Day is a considerably better episode. Though it does draw from a lot of the same strengths, I think it's really interesting to see how how close the CMCs are in depiction from two basically disconnected writers. I mean, I don't even know if Becky Wangberg ever would have met Megan McCarthy and separated by, you know, several years of development of the show. I said in the review of the last episode, they are very pliable characters. You can lean into the childish aspect. You can lean into the growing aspect, the maturing aspect. I mean, this does lean very much into the childlike aspect, but it's just always a joy to see the CMCs interacting, playing off each other. And they do this really well in both. They are a team, but at the same time, they poke fun at each other, which is something that's slightly more pronounced in Hard to Say Anything. There's a bit more of that early season ribbing of each other, like Scootaloo mocking Sweetie Belle for still being into fairy tales. But I think it's because Hard to Say Anything doesn't really go much beyond what the girls are doing. And the fact that what message there is basically is just a, a resolution of the implied message of, of Hearts and Hooves Day, which is... You've got to listen to what people want, not what you think would be best for them. It's, it's just that, like, nudged along slightly, but so slightly nudged along that I'm not sure if it really does justify itself. Not that there's anything wrong with it. It's a perfectly enjoyable, serviceable episode. It just doesn't have the, the, the peaks or the pacing or simply the dynamic tension between the world of the kids and the adults. Now... I realise I'm looking at this through goggles informed by changing trends and adult negotiations of propriety and ethics, which I think is almost beside the point in this case. Nonetheless, at one point, uh, mirroring something like Sleeping Beauty, the girls think it will be a smashing idea for Big Mac to wake up Sugar Bell from her sleep with a kiss. And now from the girls' standpoint, it's, it's understandable. They've read it in a fairy tale. They assume it's romantic. They don't understand the emotional context. And they've not yet grasped that each person has to sort of express an interest in each other beforehand. And that's fine. That's just what kids do. It's part of their negotiation with the world as they grow up. But why Big Mac just follows this blatantly destructive path is somewhat more questionable. He's, he's almost like an extension of the kids here. It's silly. And it's hard not to problematise it, even though I know it's supposed to be from the girl's perspective. You're a, you're a big pony, Big Mac. You're too old for this. So there is no tension between the child world and the adult world in this, basically. It takes a lot of depth and humorous potential from the episode that I think Hearts and Hooves Day has in spades. Now, as I have very little in the way of stray observations about hard to say anything, what I'm going to do, I'll drop my score in for that episode. 
It's a 6.5. It's fine, really. It just does not draw much attention to itself. And now I'm going to go a little bit deeper into Hearts and Hooves Day and the things that make that a trifle more successful. This is my book, and I'm going to read it! As I've implied, and I've probably laid on too thickly in the past, I think season two does have its share of issues that people don't often acknowledge, but I do realise that a lot of this is sort of subjectivity. There was a tendency towards sort of farcical screwball plotting, leading to a kind of comic twist at the end. Uh, while this could be incredibly funny, I mean, not only do we have the Hearts and Hooves Day example with, with Cheerilee's killer line at the bottom of the pit, also we have super speedy cider squeezy 6000, if that's what it was called, with the subversive Applejack quote-unquote message at the end. There are lots of episodes that sort of rely on a build-up of chaos, uh, literally in the case of Return of Harmony. And uh, I think sometimes this can be fatiguing, especially when it's reflected with such breathless elasticity and busyness in the, in the animation. However, reframing this, when done in the correct proportions, I think a lot of these elements really benefited the show in the long run. And I think as season two went on, it pulled back a little and we got episodes like Hearts and Hooves Day which almost border on being sort of too breathlessly hysterical. It's, it's furiously paced, but there are perhaps just enough spaces for breath and there is enough contrast between the way the characters behave. As I mentioned, the sort of comparative dry, down-to-earth reactions of the adults. Uh, to mean it doesn't quite become as fatiguing as an episode like Lesson Zero, which is a really good episode, but as mentioned in a previous review... I think it had problems. I think it went a little too over the top in its realisation. For my taste. This, though, is season two. Its strengths and its innovations at its best. I love the quieter, freeze-like character framing in season one. Partly, and this is pure subjectivity again, because the expressive characters and the big gestures on a slightly flatter plane that was enforced by the Flash format, reminded me an awful lot of Giotto's Arena Chapel frescoes. This might sound really pretentious, but I've illustrated the comparison to people, and to be honest, they generally tend to get it, in my experience. Look at something like Joachim amongst the shepherds from, from his Arena Chapel frescoes, and you will see that something that is supposed to be broadly theatrical clearly emotionally illustrative with big gestures and what is super interesting is that you'll notice that while Giotto's work was for the time incredibly realistic and spurred on a lot of the technical developments of the renaissance era you will notice that the eyes are rather larger than they should be and the tops of the heads rather flatter in a lot of the arena chapel images now, this was because they would be viewed from below at quite a distance. And so it actually, making these elements larger, they would read more clearly at this distance and elevation to the viewer. But when removed from that context and just looked at in an image on your computer or as a, a copy, I've got a framed Joachim amongst the shepherds on my wall. It has this 
almost sort of cartoony expressiveness. Not to mention that it's got a beautiful pastel colour range. And I'm like, eh. There is a real intention from the artist to express something very clearly, very simply. And sacrificing realness and actually using the unreality, the theatricality to their own ends. Giotto was supposed to be incredibly accessible to anyone. Illiterate people who would walk into the church and want to be able to understand both the narrative and the emotion and stakes of biblical stories without needing to read anything. So many people were unable to read in that era, even in the most ostensibly developed countries. But yeah, just remember... Talking about visual arts or or any of the arts that have this sort of stuffy reputation around them should never be used to distance people from the conversation or create a sense of elevation or status. Because most often not, this is not what the artist intended. Quite the opposite. Most of the sense of pomposity and unreachability of the arts is caused by people writing about it. The same goes for quote-unquote classical music, and it certainly goes for the visual arts. I do get the impression that a lot of people who would probably get a great deal out of painting or theatre or anything like this will be put off because of the smugness that surrounds it. These things shouldn't be protected, they shouldn't be coveted or hidden behind a rude screen of class. They, have I filled up enough time now? Yeah, okay, back to... <laughs> back to Hearts and Hooves Day. So yeah, anyway, I love the sort of freeze-like framing of the first season. I think unintentionally, perhaps, it really hit on something profound in me. Nonetheless, with an episode like Hearts and Hooves Day, I have to marvel at the efforts that have gone into making the plane of the image deeper. Loads of foreground detail. There's a scene... Uh, about two-thirds of the way through, when the Cutie Mark Crusaders have discovered what the problem with the love potion actually is, where Sweetie Belle is reading a book in the foreground, slightly blurred out, and in the background, the two other CMCs are on different planes, and there's almost like a, a fake dolly shot to give a sense of depth. It's just a, an exposition scene, really. But it's given real movement and uh, gravity in its visual aspect. I've mentioned this before, uh, I think in my review of Mysterious Mare Do Well, that for all of my issues with the ratcheted pacing and grotesque elements of season two, the framing of the shots, the storyboarding is exquisite. Such visually interesting episodes. There's so much going on here. There's like each scene has to be framed or animated in a different manner. I can say this, through a combination of her pacey scripting and the team she had assembled, or were assembled around her in the case of season two, you could accuse Megan McCarthy of many things. It would be hard to say that she ever produced an episode that could be remotely considered dull. <laughs> she ran with the adventure side of the brief that Lauren Faust presented, and as a result, produced some of the most visually awe-inspiring and eventful episodes. What's more unlike the excesses of 
earlier season two. This really does a lot with the increased bank of expressions for the characters, particularly the scenes with Big Mac and Cheery Lee. Oh, they're wonderful. Just their silent, awkward exchanges. Cheery Lee has a vast wardrobe of, of exploitable faces from this episode. I think this episode made people fall in love with Cheery Lee. It does take risks with, with the uh, elasticity of the expressions of the characters, but it never treads on anything. It never treads on the acting. This is an issue that I feel will come back later in the show, but we will address that when we come to it. We also have the richer colour range, which was almost a bit muddy and eclectic in the earlier episodes of season two, but by this point it really gives each episode a sense of character. When I think of this episode, I think of purples and pinks. Now it's true that a lot of the backgrounds aren't as detailed as they later would be. They're a little more impressionistic, a little more sort of Chuck Jones Looney Tunes, if you will but they work in giving it a kind of uniform visual character, which the best episodes of season two really had. One thing that immediately caught my attention here, well, aside from the very introduction, is how fantastic William Anderson's score for this episode is. It's almost like high noon, the way he takes that sort of conventional French romantic tune that's played initially on the Victrola or whatever that thing is. He takes that element and gradually distorts it and makes it more and more warped as the episode goes on. And this conception of love becomes unbearably twisted. It's not as dark as I make that sound, but oh, the way he refits that musical motif to a number of different scenarios is fantastic. Not only do you have the kind of wonky, woozy accordions that uh, speak of the escalation of their affection for each other, quote-unquote, the final scene where they're literally running at each other, there's a charge behind it, like a, an, an inhuman bass rumble. It's like they've become a chaotic force of nature, it's a production powerhouse, this episode, and it really does make me appreciate what season two did for the show. Just be honest with them. I'm sure they'll understand where you're coming from. Now, I might have mentioned before in passing that this is one of the comparatively few episodes of season two that does border on being a 10 for me. But while I consider it an essential episode and one of the very best CMC episodes... There are genuine flaws with the episode. The stakes are manufactured. So the idea of a love poison, you, you think, oh, oh no, it's going to kill them. But no, it's just basically affection that gets out of hand at the cost of all else. And Apple Bloom tries to express why this is such a big problem by saying that, oh, if cheerily and... Big Mac don't do their jobs, it might mean the end of Equestria. Uh, that is not explained. It is literally a, a bizarre worst-case scenario. But we just run with it to, to provide stakes for, for the remainder of the episode. And run they do. <laughs> What's more, the pace becomes so <laughs> insanely ratcheted towards the end that um, 
it seems like the CMCs are just forced to drop in exposition on the hoof in order to make the quick-cutting events comprehensible. The epitome of this is where Scootaloo, in Golden Age comic book fashion, crawls towards the door of the Carousel Boutique, saying, Got to keep him out of boutique! And I don't actually think it's played for laughs, but it is pretty um, transparent exposition. And perhaps a little hint that the show maybe could calm down a tad. However, by the time it gets to the the encounter in the pit and the ballet of flying ponies that precedes it, I was sort of won over by the sheer amount of effort, kinesis and focus that, that has gone into all of this. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great episode. It's an all-timer, really. Um, pleased I could revisit this one. Hearts and Hooves Day gets a 9.5. Got any problems, troubles, conundrums, or any other sort of issues, major or minor, that I, as a good friend, could help you solve? So, hope you all enjoyed that. I did have to mix it up a bit, I acknowledge, but I was really going to underrun quite severely if I just ran off my original notes for Hard to Say Anything, which are cumulatively about 110 words altogether. It might not always be welcome, but I'm trying to add value. As always, if you want to get in touch, you can email us at allplottedout at outlook.com, all lowercase, all one word, allplottedout at outlook.com, or contact us on the Facebook page at All Plotted Out. These details can also be found in the podcast description. But until next time, stay well, stay safe, stay tolerant, and try not to submit nappies as coursework. Unless you can find a really good, aesthetically backed-up reason to do so. Nonetheless, how you get around a digital submission with this is another question. Nappies, again. Ta-ra! Maybe the later books are slightly more realistic than I gave them credit for.